I was maybe seven or eight years old at primary school in Inniskillen in Northern Ireland. And one break time, I was standing at a low stone wall and suddenly the whole sky on the hill in front of me was filled with the Virgin Mary, all blue and pink and soft, and then she just disappeared. I suppose it was an unusual vision for a Protestant child in that part of the country, but it's an image that stayed with me in my heart ever since. I'm Alison Hilliard and I'm one of the presenters of Things Unseen. Today in a special Christmas edition, we're focusing on Mary, the young woman Christians believe gave birth to the baby Jesus in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, and who's very much at the heart of the Christmas story for millions of people around the world. I've never told anyone publicly about my vision of Mary until now, maybe because the Virgin Mary wasn't at all part of my Church of Ireland Protestant upbringing in Northern Ireland. This was the land, after all, where the Reverend Ian Paisley called the Pope the Antichrist and denounced Mary as Rome's supreme goddess and that veneration of her was false, idolatrous and unbiblical. So Mary played no part at all in my childhood. She only made a starring appearance once a year in my church's nativity play. But my vision of the Virgin Mary has never faded from my memory. And years later, when I went to live in the Holy Land, I was drawn again to Mary, and in particular, to the places associated with her, where she had her first pains of childbirth, or where she breastfed the infant Jesus. But today's a first for me. I've come to Walsingham, a remote village in the north of Norfolk, and the major pilgrimage site to Mary in England. And with me to start our pilgrimage in the parish church of the Annunciation in Little Walsingham are two of my Things Unseen presenter colleagues, one a Catholic and one a Muslim. And I'm here to find out how they relate to Mary and why the mother of Jesus has such a special place in the hearts of many different people of faith. My name is Mark Dowd. I'm a former Dominican friar, and unlike Alison, Mary was very much a central part of my childhood. I grew up in a cradle Catholic home in Salford in the north of England. My grandmother, when uh, she wasn't displaying pictures of all the different popes that had existed in her life, had images and statues of the Virgin Mary everywhere in her house. There were rosary beads for praying the rosary. At school, Mary was absolutely everywhere particularly during the month of May, when we chose a young girl to ascend the steps and to crown her Queen of the May. I'm slightly envious of the fact that uh, here I am with Alison, who was brought up as a Protestant in Northern Ireland, and she gets to have a vision, and I don't get one at all. Mary was a bit of a superstitious figure for me, because parents always said if you were in desperation, you'd always turn to Mary. And I remember during a football match, when Manchester United were losing to Norwich City, I remember switching the radio off and getting on my knees in front of the statue in my bedroom. And miraculously, as I thought, by the time I switched the radio back on, Man United had scored not just one, but two goals. I'd like to think that with the uh, advancing years that my image of Mary has matured quite a bit since adolescence. For me, Mary now is the person who bookends the beginning and the end of Jesus's life. In other words, she's an image and a person of constancy and fidelity. And you know, compare that with the fickleness 
and the lack of faith shown by so many men in the New Testament, the people who betrayed Jesus, who denied him, who ran away in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mary doesn't do that. Mary's there right at the beginning of Jesus's life, and she's there at the foot of the cross right at the end. I'm Ramona Ali, and I'm a Muslim and a journalist. Now, unlike Mark and Alison, I've obviously been brought up with the Quranic version of Mary, but I was also exposed to the Christian story. I used to be in the nativity play at school, but I was always a sheep. <laughs> but I grew up and I always was very drawn to the story of Mary in the Quran, because to me, she is such an exceptional person. She's singled out in the Quran as the best woman in all creation. As a Muslim, it might surprise some people that I also love Christmas because I feel that spiritual significance and the synergy around Christmas time because both Mary and Jesus are so important to Muslims all over the world. It's 10 o'clock in the morning and we're about to start our pilgrimage, first with a visit to the Catholic shrine here at Walsingham because there are two separate shrines, one Anglican and one Catholic. The story goes that a Saxon noblewoman called Rochelldus had a vision in the 11th century. She was taken by Mary to be shown the house in Nazareth where the angel Gabriel announced the news of the birth of Jesus. Mary asked her to build an exact replica of that house here in Walsingham. The noblewoman did just that, and pilgrims started to come to what became known as England's Nazareth. We're standing outside the Slipper Chapel, which is a fairly modest building. It's got a lot of pebble-encrusted walls, some lovely arch windows. I can see some candles just glimmering away through the the windows there ahead of us. Originally, this site dates from medieval times, but beyond that, I don't really know very much. So thankfully, I've got with me Monsignor John Armitage, who's the rector of the Catholic Shrine here at Walsingham. And I suppose the obvious question is, why, why is it called the Slipper Chapel? It's the only building that really survived intact from the destruction of the monasteries. It's a wayside chapel, and in fact, it's the last wayside chapel in England. It was the place where pilgrims headed in this direction to go to Walsingham, but this is exactly one mile from the what had been the priory of Our Lady of Walsingham, where the Holy House was. So when they got here, this was the last part of the journey. And of course, the journeys could have taken weeks or months or sometimes even years to get to Walsingham. They would come here, go to confession, and then they would take their shoes off or their slippers and leave them here and walk the last mile barefoot. And so you refer to the dissolution of the monasteries, that's the 16th century and post-Henry VIII and so on. But bringing us forward to the 21st century, do people still follow that tradition, some people, and take their shoes off and do the last stretch barefoot? Yes, well, we would have hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who would come here every year. And it's not obligatory to go barefoot, but many pilgrims do walk the last bit barefoot, yes. Perhaps you'd be so kind as to take us inside yes. so we can have a, a further look. It's not a very big space, is it? No, it's a very small chapel. You can get probably the most about 25 in here at a push. 
But it is a chapel where Mass is celebrated, and of course it's in here that we have our statue of Our Lady of Walsingham. Tell us more about this iconic image. Well, we have a statue that's about 18 inches tall. It's a highly coloured statue. You'll see Mary sitting on a throne. They're both crowned. When you say both, obviously we've got the infant Jesus perched on Mary's lap. Indeed, yes. And he is holding a Bible, a copy of the scriptures, in his hand. She is holding a lily, which is always the sign of purity. And these are Saxon crowns, which means they are the style of the Saxon kings of England. So this dates the time of when the apparition took place in 1061. On a more personal note, what's been your story in terms of your relationship with Mary as as a Roman Catholic? The story would be the story of every person has with their mother. I mean, that's where it begins, you know? Devotion to Mary is not theological. Devotion to Mary is that sense that we learn from our mothers that we're cared for, is that we're loved, that we learn from our mothers what unconditional love is all about. You know, and that wonderful phrase, you know, only a mother could love him. All naughty children understand that. So that's where it starts. And then we look at Mary. There are very few words, very few stories about Mary in the scriptures, but very significant ones. And they are essentially ones that about Mary, first of all, being asked to do something that she felt she couldn't do. So the story of the angel appearing to her that she would become the mother of God's son. And she said, I can't do this. You, you must be wrong. And the angel, like all angels, are very persistent and said, Mary, do not be afraid. And then he explains to her. And then she realizes that this is not about her. This is about what God wants to do in her life. And because she moves from her own worries and fears and anxieties to what God wants her to do, she then quite simply says, behold the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Just a long way of saying yes. Now, that as an image, for me, has been a powerful one. I am asked in my life to do things I don't think I can do. For me, that is my greatest attachment and encouragement from Mary. Is there a danger of a kind of over-sugary, over-sentimental approach that can almost border on idolatry with Mary? Have we got to be careful? Because there are some Christians, particularly in the evangelical Protestant tradition, who are very wary of the um, place of Mary in the Catholic tradition? Well, first and foremost, we don't worship Mary. One cannot worship anyone but God, or anything but God. So one makes a distinction between devotion to and worship of, and that's a very important thing. We worship God in this place, and we worship God in a way that Mary has sort of encouraged us, you know, do whatever he tells you, was one of her sayings. But devotion to someone is recognising that here in this person's life there is something that touches me. This is someone who inspires me. This is a a human being who has experienced life as I have experienced and do experience it. And again, I come back to my mother. You know, my experience of Mary is not a sugary one because that's not the experience of my mother. She was no way sugary, my mum, but she was loving in a way that I think most people do see Our Lady pointing us and walking with us and just being there for us. And when we are down, lifting us up. Now, is that not the job of Jesus? Well, of course that's the job. Of course that's what God does. But God came on earth 
And God used human beings. God walked among us and still does. So, Monsignor, perhaps as we bring this to a, a close, you'd just like to lead us in a short prayer, and the kind of prayer that pilgrims might be normally exposed to hearing when they come to a place like this. Yes, indeed. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Hail, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us, and after this our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. Our Lady of Walsingham, pray for us. So it's a beautiful prayer that you just uh, recited. Um, for me, it's very fascinating as a Muslim because I don't go through any intercessor when I pray to God. And I was just wondering, for Catholics, are the prayers that you make, are they prayers that are asking Mary to intercede on their behalf, or is there more to it than that? I think it is very usual when one is in need to say to another human being, please pray for me. That's it. That's the beginning, the middle, and the end of intercession for Mary. Please pray for me. For me as a Muslim, that was a really new way to think about devotion to Mary. And certainly in Sunni Islam, we don't pray to any saints to ask for their intercession. We always turn to God directly. So Mark, as a Catholic, do you pray to Mary? I don't pray to Mary in the sense that I don't put Mary in place of God, but I might, in a sense, have a word. That's what we say when we say the word intercede. And times in my life when I might do that, when people are ill, when I myself feel particularly weak and in need of inspiration and I feel that God is remote, I'm very aware of praying the rosary sometimes, which is this constant cycle of, of Hail Marys, almost in a sense of being close via Mary to God because Mary was constantly with Jesus throughout the whole of his life. And therefore, in a sense, as a mother figure, She's a bridge, a bridge between me and God, and that's how Mary comes into my life. And Alison, how about you? I love that image of Mary being a bridge in my life. I don't have the tradition of praying to Mary or coming to her with particular requests, but when I was living in the Holy Land, one of my favourite places to go to was the Milk Grotto in Bethlehem, and in the Milk Grotto, that's where Mary is said to have stopped by to breastfeed the baby Jesus when she was on flight to Egypt, fleeing from King Herod. And it's said that a drop of Mary's breast milk fell to the ground and turned the red stone of the cave milky white, and that's how you see it today. And when you go into that place, the, the Milk Grotto, you see Muslim and Christian women, local Muslim and Christian women in particular, praying for fertility, praying for the gift of children. And I know that I went there to pray for the gift of children, praying in front of an icon of the breastfeeding Virgin Mary and lit a candle there to pray for the gift of children. And what happened? Was your prayer answered? Well, I did have two boys. And in fact, this summer, I took those two teenage boys back to 
say a prayer of thankfulness and in thankfulness for that gift. And so, yes, I think it was answered, but I don't think it's a black and white that it was answered or not answered because I happened to pray in the Milk Grotto. I know that the Franciscan friar at the Milk Grotto would say that thousands of babies have been born because people have prayed to the Virgin Mary in the Milk Grotto, and he's got lots of photographs of smiling babies. For me, it wasn't such cause and effect. For me, it was a perfectly natural thing to do, to go and ask for perhaps the greatest gift, which is the gift of children, to just ask that to a mother figure like Mary. And I think that's a wonderful thing to be able to, to do. And to be truthful, I don't analyze it too much. I'm just thankful and grateful. We're still at the Catholic Shrine here in Walsingham, and with us now is Julian Ford, the Catholic Pilgrimage Coordinator. I just wanted to ask you, Julian, how unusual is it for a Muslim to come to this shrine? We welcome Muslims very much to this shrine, and for the first time this year, we had an interfaith pilgrimage from the Interfaith Forum of East Anglia. And on that pilgrimage, we welcomed members of the Hindu faith, the Sikh faith, the Muslim faith, and the Baha'i faith. I'm also very much aware when I'm greeting groups that amongst those groups, there are often Muslims. And an interesting thing is that there are actually more references to Mary in the Quran than there are in the New Testament. I'm just outside the shrine uh, amongst the trees and the birds and I'm about to do my afternoon prayer and uh, it's very relevant for me that I'm praying a prayer that Mary would have prayed many centuries ago because in the Quran the angels instruct Mary to stand in devotion and to bow down with those who worship so the Muslim prayer now is something that is very relevant to Mary and to me. Allahu Akbar. Well, let's set off now on our way to the main shrine in Walsingham on the Holy Mile, which pilgrims traditionally do on foot. In the Bible, we hear about the angel Gabriel visiting Mary in Nazareth, telling her that she will bear the, the Son of God. Ramona, is that a story that, as a Muslim, you're familiar with? Yes, yes. In the Quran, there's a, quite a detailed description about Mary being visited by angel Gabriel, where the angel Gabriel tells Mary, you are going to have a son. And, and she questions it, like, how... How can I have a son when no man has touched me and I haven't been unchaste? And he says, this is what God can make happen. He can make anything happen. And that's a miracle that we believe in. But quite a lot of the story in the Quran, as I understand it, is very different from the story we get in the Bible. In Islam's account, there's no figure of Joseph. There is no mention of a Joseph figure in the Quran. Mary is entirely on her own when she gives birth and she withdraws to a distant place, a distant land, and she's in the middle of labor pains and she clings onto a palm tree and um, there's a voice that, that comes from below 
to reassure her as she is crying out in anguish. She's like saying, oh, I wish I was dead and you know, long forgotten. So she is reassured by a voice from below. It's described in that way in the Quran. And you know, many scholars have said this could have been her child speaking to her, reassuring her, don't worry, God will provide for you. So she's told to shake the tree and the dates fall and they give her sustenance and a stream is also provided for her. So she eats and drinks to be strong for her child. And then what happens after the baby is born? Because, of course, in the Christian story, we have the shepherds coming and we can hear lots of sheep around us here, but there's that lovely vision of the angels coming to the shepherds and them coming to pay homage to the Christ child and then the wise men. But what do we have in the Quran? Well, Mary does go back to her community carrying the infant Jesus and she's scorned by the community. They are thinking the worst and she takes a vow of silence so she can't even defend herself she doesn't want to defend herself and in fact the first miracle of Jesus in the Islamic tradition is that he speaks as an infant and he speaks to defend her honor and actually some of his first words are I'm here to cherish my mother so there's such a beautiful relationship between them even before he grows into an adult and becomes the Jesus that we all know but I suppose you'd have to say he's not the Jesus that Christians know. He's not seen to be the son of God, this baby that Mary has just given birth to. Yes, that's right. Muslims don't believe at all that he was the son of God. But Muslims believe that he was one of the major prophets of Islam. He was a man and that he was a messenger. But he's often referred to in the Quran as Jesus, the son of Mary. I love that description that emphasises like his status through his mother. You talk about her with such affection, really. What does she really mean to you? Is she a role model to you? Or do you think it's just a nice story? Or what does she mean to you? Oh, the story of Mary is so powerful. It fascinates me. She is a role model because she's chosen by God himself in the Quran, who says, you know, I've chosen you beyond all other women in creation. And even Prophet Muhammad also says that she's a leader of the women of paradise. So for many Muslim men and women, they really respect her and feel that she is someone we should emulate in her strong determination, her resolve, you know, her deep-seated faith. So, yeah, she is an inspiration to me. And I feel that Mary is someone who could really unify us, especially amongst the Muslim and the Christian traditions, because that love for Mary is relevant to both of our traditions. I feel slightly ashamed, in a way, of the image that Mary had when I was growing up as a child. You know, when I think of descriptions of her as the mannequin of the Roman catwalk or that worship of her was idolatrous. This is a very different image of, of Mary that's being presented. Mark, what sort of image of Mary are you comfortable with? I'm still very uncomfortable with a kind of sentimental, passive image of Mary, which I think some men in particular over the centuries have used to downplay the role of women. But it's actually more than that, isn't it? I know that the Catholic hierarchy, a male celibate Catholic hierarchy, has often been accused of elevating Mary into a position, into a role model that real women can't aspire to at all. 
Yeah, I think that's right. But, I mean, next to perfection, we all fall short, men and women. And after Mary receives the news from the angel Gabriel that she's become the mother of God, she utters this magnificent prayer. It's called the Magnificat. She says in this prayer, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. And why? Because in choosing her, a humble Palestinian adolescent girl, to be the mother of God, she says that this shows that God is actually going to turn the world upside down, that the rich are going to be humiliated and the poor are going to be fed and the mighty are going to be cast down from their thrones. And, you know, anybody who's seen in a football match that tiny little team knocking out the big guns, there's something in the human spirit that speaks of the joy of the underdog finally winning. And I think that's what's happening in the story. And, of course, there's a, almost a democratic element. It's not just Mary. This is what we're all being invited into because God is going to do that for all of us in the fullness of time. So this prayer from Mary is extending this idea that the gospel turns the world on its head, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We've now just come to the end of the Holy Mile and the Anglican Shrine has just come into view. And what we've got here ahead of us is a whole complex of different buildings. And at the heart of it is a small church. It's known as the Shrine Church. And inside it, the Holy House. That's the house which is meant to be an exact replica of Mary's house in Nazareth. Well, with us now is Father Graeme Lunn, and he's the shrine priest here at the Anglican Shrine. Father Graeme, will you show us inside and tell us a bit about the Anglican Shrine here? I'd be delighted to. Let's go in through the fountain courtyard and into the shrine church. from the cold coming into a lovely warm space and this is a highly decorated space beautiful how long has the, this shrine stood on this site for this particular shrine church was built in the 1920s and was opened in 1931 surrounding just the small holy house a replica of the family home of Jesus in Nazareth the original holy house is a few hundred yards away across the road or rather the site of the original Holy House. And is there anything remaining of that original Holy House? No, not anymore. What you do see is the main east window archway of the Abbey Church, which was next to the Holy House, but that was destroyed in 1538. Well, we're now inside the Holy House, and maybe you can help me describe what it looks like, because it doesn't look very much to me like the inside of a normal house, let alone a house in, in Nazareth. It's built, as it were, on the footprint, the size of the Holy House in Nazareth. It is a fairly empty space with candle stands lining the walls and an altar at the far end above which sits the image of Our Lady of Walsingham. I think the emptiness is useful in that a home is only a home because of the people who are there and the love that is inside its four walls. So people are free to imagine themselves at home in whatever way they feel appropriate. On the altar sits another image of Mary holding Jesus and looking not necessarily at me, but looking over my shoulder. And I often wonder what she's looking at and what she's trying to 
tell me to look at. What does Mary then mean to you who, who live and who work in this place? You see pilgrims come and pilgrims go and beautiful images like this of Mary. What is the image of Mary to you and what does Mary say to you personally? I think one of the most important things that people find here is a sense of being at home, a sense of being accepted and cared for. The love that was within the Holy Family is felt in this place. And pilgrims who come feel that deeply. They know that they can bring their needs. They know that they will find, as it were in Mary, a listening ear. And she's that to me too. And I do have to remind myself to come in here every day to get away from the desk or out of the pulpit and come and spend some time with the one who does listen and does love. And people come here and they light candles. We've got many candles lit around this small place. The lamps here are lit. And I believe there's also a place where pilgrims can go and drink from the holy well. Absolutely. So we're going down um, a set of stairs here. The goal of medieval pilgrimage to Walsingham was twofold. It was the Holy House and also the well. The medieval scholar Erasmus described Walsingham as being a place which is good for headaches and heartaches. And people still come here to seek the water. People receive the water in three ways. They drink, firstly, then they're marked with the sign of the cross, and whatever's left is poured through their open hands. A drink, as it were, to remind us of the extent to which God wishes to fill us with his love and with his gifts. And we're marked out as those who can live the life that Christ died to enable us to live. And then we're reminded of the generosity of God because we can't contain the water. It will pour through our hands. We're supposed to share the love of God with those with whom we have to do. Well, I would love to have some water. It's a long way from my roots, but that's a beautiful tradition. Mm. So I drink some of this water in a ladle. May Almighty God, at the intercession of Our Lady of Walsingham, grant you health and peace. And now for my colleague Ramona, I suppose slightly different in the sense she wouldn't have the sign of the cross made. But Ramona, would you like to come? May Almighty God, at the intercession of Our Lady of Walsingham, grant you health and peace. As you might be able to hear, we're now back at the Catholic shrine where the pilgrims have gathered for the annual ecumenical carol service that really heralds the Christmas season here at Walsingham and that carol service has just begun. And of course it's a time to celebrate the birth of Jesus and to remember the story of Joseph and of Mary. Let what you have said be done to me. 
There are a lot of pilgrims coming out of the church now and I'm really curious to explore with them precisely how important devotion to Mary is. Well, <laughs> oh, how deep is an ocean? She's supposed to be so lowly and so humble, but because of that, through that, she is awesomely majestic. She holds the world in the palm of her hand through her utter lowliness. Mary brought Christ into the world. Mary is a wonderful example of prayer, a wonderful example of following Christ, particularly for us at this time of year, when we need to get rid of so much clutter and focus on what is essential as we move towards Christmas. Mary has answered some prayers for me. I suffered all my life from quite serious epilepsy and through prayers to Our Lady, I'm quite convinced that I was cured of the epilepsy and so obviously Our Lady means a great deal to me. Why is devotion to Mary so important in your life? Well, my name is Mary. That's a good enough reason. <laughs> my mother called me after Our Blessed Lady. I'm 70 now and as long as I can remember, I have always had a very, very special place for Our Lady in my heart. And why is that especially? Is it the story of her life or what, what in particular touched you? It's because we know and we believe that she loves us. coming to the end of our pilgrimage here at Walsingham and I'd just really like to hear from both of you if the experience of going on pilgrimage to Walsingham today has, has changed you in any way or made you think about Mary in any different way. What about you Ramona? Well I think coming here has um, really brought home the importance of motherhood especially. It reminds me of a, of a hadith or a saying by Prophet Muhammad that goes, paradise lies at the feet of your mother. And I was reminded of that when I was in the slipper chapel and I was witnessing a lady who was kneeling at the feet of the statue of Mary, praying. And I just feel that I have increased love and respect for my own mother now and also for all mothers around the world. And, and for Mary, of course, my love and respect for her has grown through this experience. And Ramona, as a Muslim woman here today, was there anything that made you feel uncomfortable? I've been very challenged by all the images and the statues of Mary because in the Islamic tradition we don't have iconography because of the fear that it can lead to worship of Mary and Jesus. So for me, as a Sunni Muslim, it sits uncomfortably. What about you, Mark? Sugar sweet made you cringe? Uplifted? Good preparation for Christmas? 
It made me think of that wonderful verse in the Old Testament where Yahweh says to his people, even if a mother forgets her own baby, I will never forget you. That sense of using the image of the mother and child as an eternal bond of fidelity. And I was really, really touched when Monsignor John in the Slipper Chapel talked about his own mother, because I lost my mother five years ago, and, you know, I really miss her, and yet the more I miss her, the more there's a scope in my life for Mary to move into that space. So, in a sense, it's allowing me to think more positively about the loss of my own mother, which is something I'd never thought about until I came here today. That's quite a moving gift that Walsingham has given you. Yeah, and for you, Alison, having spent this day here on pilgrimage, we started this programme with you talking about that vision. Do you think any differently about that now? Is there a part in your mind that still thinks that it might have been part of your imagination and in some sense it wasn't real? Or are you more convinced of it than ever? Honestly, I don't analyse it and I don't want to analyse it. I know it was real to me and it is real to me and I still hold it in my mind as clearly as the day I saw it. But whether it was because I was a child or whether it was true, whether it happened or whether it didn't happen, it was a gift to me. As we finish our pilgrimage here in Walsingham, I'm reminded of what the romantic poet Novalis said of Mary. I see you in a thousand pictures, and yet none can describe you as I see you in my soul. And certainly our pilgrimage here to Walsingham this Christmas has added another colour to that picture, which I carry with me in my soul. And so I'd like to thank Mark Dowd and Ramona Ali for sharing their Mary with me this Christmas and for joining me on pilgrimage to England's Nazareth here in Walsingham for this Christmas edition of Things Unseen. I'm Alison Hilliard and Things Unseen was brought to you by CTVC. Hear this program again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.